Hey everyone. This episode that you're about to hear with me and Jack Murphy is very different from what you're used to hearing on the Rugged Legacy podcast. But I brought Jack on today because I personally believe that we are in the middle of a culture war. Now, as you all know, I don't comment particularly any on current events or politics. That said, with what's going on in our society today, I believe it's important that we are able to get as many of the facts as possible. And from what I've seen, Jack Murphy is the only one who is on the ground giving an unbiased, true account of what's going on on the battlefield today. I understand that many of you may feel differently as far as your political viewpoints go, and I don't ask that you uh, change any of that. I'm completely okay, and I'm, sure, I'm certain that Jack is completely okay with the various political views of the listeners here. That said, I do believe that it's very important that no matter what side you're on, that while listening to this episode, whether you agree with Jack and myself or not, that you kind of take to heart exactly what's being said in this episode. And if you disagree with it, that's completely okay. But I guess I'm just putting this on here as a disclaimer. A lot of you aren't going to be happy with what's said on this episode. But you don't really have to listen to it. But if you do, try to keep an open mind. And I would love any kind of feedback, uh, whether it be on Twitter uh, to my email, which you can find at the bottom of my website, or my DMs. It, it doesn't really matter. But any kind of feedback you have, I would really appreciate it. I'm certain Jack would love it as well. But that's going to be up to you. You know. That said, we're going to get into the episode right now. And so I was like, oh, man, Rand Paul, you got to get out of here. So we went... He and I like found there was one cop nearby. So we found him and we got Rand Paul with the cop. And as I was doing that, the mob noticed that there was Rand Paul. And so about 50 of them just circled Rand Paul all together. But Rand, luckily, I had gotten to him first. I had gotten the cop. And so he was basically just like taking refuge behind this police officer who was fighting off like 50 guys standing there, making sure that nobody, nobody assaulted him. You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I'm joined today by Jack Murphy. He is the author of Democrats to Deplorables. He is the founder of the Liminal Order. He's an independent journalist, and he's also the host of Jack Murphy Live. Jack, thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been really excited about talking to you, man. Uh, I've watched a lot of everything that you've been doing on your YouTube channel, on your social media live feeds, and you are one of the few that have the nuts to get down there in the trenches with these guys uh, during these riots, and you're one-on-one -on -one with a lot of these, and you're just filming it and giving everybody who doesn't have access to truthful media, all right, because we know one channel is going to sway it more than the other. To me, both sides of it, Fox and CNN, are both full of shit, and you're down there showing what's really going on. But it takes a lot of guts to do that, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, the goal is to, is to just shine a light on the truth and uh, let people sort of judge for themselves and to give, you know, accurate reporting. But, you know, beating the mainstream media isn't all that difficult these days. You just have to be faster, smarter, tougher, and quicker. And, you know, really, that's, it's not that difficult. Uh, but uh, when you get down there and like things start to heat up and there's flashbangs and tear gas and, and cops and riot gear and people throwing shit and breaking up the, the ground to throw bricks at people. And, you know, I was even down there on May 30th in D.C. when there was just I witnessed probably, you know, hundreds of felonies, like people setting buildings on fire, you know, like the, where there was like five, six you know fire trucks had to show up. Uh, flaming dumpsters, uh, you know, setting trees on fire, destroying property all over the place, looting, people just smashing windows, running into places, setting them on fire, stealing everything that they can. 
uh, just throwing rocks and rocks and rocks at windows, big giant office buildings, just all the windows just destroyed, knocked out. People throwing things at cops, throwing gas cans and, and, and you know, just like heavy objects at the police officers. It's, you know, it's chaotic. Uh, but, you know, like it's been my city. It's in Washington, D.C. It's where I'm from. Um, I've dealt with Antifa for a number of years now. They, they came after me and my family back in, I think, 2018. And even before that, I had, I had been seeing them, you know, just at various events that I would attend. They would follow us around town yelling death threats and protesting anytime we, we had like a dinner or a party or, or whatever. And so I've been following Antifa for a long time and, and the political scene, obviously. And so when it's all going down in my backyard in Washington, D.C., there's really no, no choice but to get down there, see what's happening, observe, report out to everybody, uh, be a witness, you know, um, and uh, just to try to do some good along the way, you know, like there's, there's people that get caught up in the mix down there and I'd like to try to help, help out as best I can. But, you know, it's, uh, it's tough when there's, you know, hundreds of people that if they knew who you were, they would probably come all, you know, probably assault you right there on the spot. So it's, a, it's, always, it's always intense. It's always uh, worthwhile. The support that I get from everybody is tremendous. And uh, dude, we've done like millions of views, millions of views on some of these videos. Uh, making national news and, and really being out ahead of the curve. So it's, it's been a wild ride, that element for sure. Yeah. So I know it's in your, you know, it's in your hometown. It's, it's your backyard. Some of these things have, you know, gone down, you know, mere blocks away from your front door. Is that what drives you to go out there and report on it? Cause a lot of people I think would just, you know, shutter their doors and hunker down and hope for it to blow over. You know, not very many people want to go out there with a camera and start documenting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've lived here in D.C. since about 1995, so 25 years, and I've been in the area almost 30. Um, I went to school here, grad school here, worked here, built, built schools, built institutions. I was a builder and a developer for a while, so I built buildings that are still operational all around the city. Uh, my kids were born here. They went to public school here. You know, I'm I'm invested in Washington D.C. This is my home. I don't I don't claim anywhere else. And uh, for all this to be going down right in my my name my own neighborhood, people getting shot right in my own neighborhood, people getting you know, people getting harassed at restaurants and and you know stores looted and destroyed in my old neighborhood, which is just was like a serene little just quiet neighborhood. You know, I I'm obviously displeased and upset and outraged by what's happening. And uh, given my position with social media and my reach and my connections, my network, you know, I have a unique opportunity to document what's going on and, and not only just document it, because there's a lot of people down there just like live streaming or recording it to their phone or whatever or on Facebook Live, but, you know, no slight to them, but, you know, they're just like recording it for their fr friends back home or, or whatever, just a few people. But uh, I have a network that's enabling me to record and broadcast and then be distributed to literally millions of people. Like some, some of my videos and, and impressions from the photos and, and Twitter, you know, we're talking millions, millions of eyeballs on them. So it's a unique situation uh, top to bottom. It's been my beat for a number of years. I've written all about it. I've written about all the structural forces in our country that have led us to this point. I've engaged with, been a victim of, fought back against and documented Antifa. It's my hometown. I've got the social media network. I've got the capability, the journalistic intent. And so all those things line up and, and boom, I'm out there and, and everybody knows. And, uh, you know, you stay out there long enough, you get involved and all of a sudden it's like a national story. Yeah, it's, you know, I live in, I think I've got maybe 600 people in this town that I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> all right. And while we, you know, we've seen some of the, the protest and, None of them have really turned violent outside of a few knuckleheads trying to jump on cars and things like that. But those usually get shut down pretty quick down here. But when I see some of the, the footage, and I'm sure this is it's the same way for a lot of people, when I see some of the footage that you've documented and taken yourself on your live feeds, on your YouTube channel, it's almost like watching something happening in a different country. It's, is there a difference you know, I mean, I know a lot of it goes on at night. You know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's when it really gets kind of hairy because people can duck out and disappear a little easier. Uh, but is there this, like a feeling of 
building tension throughout the day there in D.C. that you just know it's going to go down that night? Or is it like a light switch, kind of a night and day kind of thing? Well, you know, a lot of it it, it is confined to just, you know, where the protesters are, right? So, you know, it is a big city and it's not like the entire place is engulfed in riots and protests. At the height of it, for sure, at the end of May, you know, the, the, it spread out from the central sort of protest zone, which is right across the street from the White House. And it, it definitely went down sort of residential streets and, and more neighborhood commercial strips and things like that. But, you know, if you're just in the outer parts of the city doing your normal thing, there's not like a bunch of people just running around the streets constantly. But if you're down there and you're with them and you see them, there's, there is a building energy in the mob, right? So you can tell how the energy rises and falls and, and a few nights when things really are popping off, the energy, it, it, it goes up, it crests, it calms down for a few minutes, and then the next energy crest is even higher. And that's how you can sort of feel whether or not things are accelerating or people are looking to, to make things more dramatic or more chaotic. Um, <clears throat> back at the end of May after the George Floyd thing, that's when it was a little bit more widespread across the city. You know, there was like explosions going off around the city. There were cars being set on fire outside of the general sort of protest zone. And like I said, there was like bands of looters and stuff, just all streaming up the main commercial arteries. I mean, even like a couple of miles from the downtown, there was buildings boarded up and had been looted and stuff. So, you know, there's a supposed to be a quote unquote siege on the white house starting September 17th. And they've been calling for all hands on deck for the 50 days remaining from that point until the election. And I suspect that uh, that night is going to be pretty eventful and there should be an escalation maybe from there all the way through until the election. So if if you're tuned in, in in that regard, there's definitely a tension building. Um, But, you know, like I, I successfully keep my children out of the way, even though they see the boarded up buildings, you know, they're like, why are these buildings boarded up? It's like, it's not Corona. It's not COVID. You know, it's, it's a fact that there's people smashing windows and stealing stuff. And, and so, you know, they feel that. Um, and my kids especially notice when I go out, right. Cause I, they'll be here and I'll leave at like nine o'clock and uh, they see me get all suited up and put on the bulletproof vest underneath my clothes and get all prepared. And so, you know, there's that sense there, but we're going to see what happens on September 17th. I imagine it's going to be unfortunately pretty, pretty notable. All right. Uh, for those of you listening, we're recording this on September the 12th. So I'm going to make sure this is out in time for you guys to uh, be out to take Jack's advice and listen and view, tune into on his channel uh, on September 17th. So this will be out before then. But okay, going back, you you you, you go out there in these riots and you, you feel these energy build up. You recently uh, got hurt. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, re- I remember watching it and you got hurt uh, out there, you know, covering the, the riots. And when I first saw what you had said, like immediately, like, holy shit, man, this what? And then later it went on to explain. But I mean, I'll let you tell the story, but it, it threw me for a loop for a second. Yeah, the energy was really, really peaking one night, and uh, there was tear gas being thrown, actually, by and smoke bombs being thrown by the protesters and tear gas by the cops, and they, the protesters were, like, tearing down some barriers, and uh, every time the barriers came down, the cops had to, you know, lay down some fire to make space so that they could move in and, and repair the barrier, and I was just trying to angle for a better camera shot, and before you know it, like there was, I saw a flashlight shine right in my face, <laughs> saw a flash of white light. And then boom, I got shot right in the neck with like a rubber bullet or something. And luckily I had on a pretty thick mask and I like a, and then I, it went through my beard <laughs> and then it hit basically my Adam's apple. And so my, my beard slowed it down. Uh, it left a welt, but uh, no real damage, luckily. But it, when, it, when it hit me, I was surprised because it was the first night that they started shooting people, the cops. And so I wasn't really expecting it. And uh, hit me hit me right in the throat, right, right while I was live streaming. I was like, oh, fuck, right in the throat. And it like sort of knocked me over a little bit. And I, I got down on the ground and then I recovered and I was just, you know, sort of right back in the mix. So uh, there have been a more, you know, sort of damaging instances I've seen for other protesters or rioters or even just journalists out there like 
cops have upgraded their their arsenal from just shooting little rubber bullets or pepper balls to now they're shooting these like little rubber uh pellets these discs and those are those are actually breaking skin and like you know busting people yeah those things look like uh mini hockey pucks i've seen those yeah yeah and you can see they've got these new orange guns and so it's it's also dumb because the 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 rioters their whole goal is to instigate a response out of the police and so when the police are used as actual barriers between the protesters and some you know valuable site like it was like lafayette park for example and that's really just the the cops there with the riot gear the batons and whatever as the the only thing holding back the the rioters from from tearing down a statue or entering a space they shouldn't be that that provides a really intense point of conflict and and one of the rules that they follow is to continue to apply pressure to evoke a response. And then you get to respond to that response and then they respond ad infinitum back and forth. And so the, they're always trying to instigate an escalation out of the police. And so the police then get constrained, you know, by like, what are the rules of engagement? What weapons can you use? What kind of crowd control tactics can you use? And, and so like the, the whole thing is just, it's just a contrived dance from the Antifa Black Lives Matter rioter people to to elicit a response out of the police. But but you know, when when they're clearly attacking barriers and taking space, then the police have no no other option but to to lay down some sort of crowd control fire and like move people back so that they can repair the barrier. Because, you know, if 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 they let the perimeter fall, then you know what what's next? And that was the same thing we saw play out in Portland at the federal courthouse there. You know, and and I also saw it again here in D.C. Like like the the rioters will, will like just storm the police precinct and just start causing havoc, and so the cops then have to come outside and create a barrier because if they're not gonna, you know, stay outside the perimeter of the building, then they got to erect one further out, and so it's just a cycle that happens over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I've noticed uh, in a lot of the coverage that I've seen that you've put up, it seems to be exactly that where, you know the writers will try one thing. Oh, that didn't get a response. So they go a little bit bigger. Oh, that got some kind of a response. So they amp it up and they amp it up and they amp it up. And then when the police are forced to respond with uh, a crowd suppression type measure, you know, whether it be tear gas, pepper balls, whatever, that's when oh look how bad these guys are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, if you're poking me in the face and poking me in the face and then you punch me in the face and then you get punched in the face for it, I'm not the asshole here, no. <laughs> you know, but That's clearly, clearly what they're doing. And and yes, there's a huge number of people that are there to peacefully protest. And I support that a hundred percent. I even support absolutely occupying the street downtown late at night. That's fine. I mean, it's, it's not, it's bad, but it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but I certainly support people's right to free speech. I mean, I followed crowds around D.C. marching and they would just march and chant and whatever. And that's fine. I, I, I recorded them at the uh, African-American History Museum in the street having prayer times. Like, I think I've been pretty even handed in showing that, yeah, there definitely are peaceful protests. They definitely are. But there's also rioters and they're all mixed in together and they work together and both sides know what the other side is doing. Uh, I believe that they use the the marches to, to distract police uh, their attention so that the you know the law enforcement spread out a little bit more and to keep them occupied. Um, you know, there's all kinds of strategy and tactics that are at work in these streets. It's you know when when you're down there and you see the fact that there's people in helmets and coordinated gas masks and uh, there's medics and there's people with bullhorns, coordinating folks. There's random roving security teams that have headsets in and walkie talkies and they're all coordinated. Then there's like a massive social media coordination that goes along with it with spotters and people watching police scanners and watching you know, traffic cameras and whatnot. Uh, and then, you know, there's even, as we saw in Portland, there's even coordinated murder teams. There are literally coordinated kill squads operating in portland right now you know antifa sworn public antifa members saying i'm antifa all all the way 100 percent," and then like two days later on video recorded a coordinated conspiracy of people work together tactically to isolate target track them 
corner them basically and then murder the guy point blank so antifa is not just like a concept right i mean it's a it is and but they also have things like this like i i've got their fucking antifa handbook here that that i look at in reference from time to time to know what they're up to and i have observed them in the street acting in a coordinated fashion and i've witnessed and viewed and analyzed and not only that but i interviewed the guy that that filmed the murder in its entirety and went through it all step by step by step. And you can clearly see the coordination. There was at least, I don't know, some people estimate up towards 15 people involved in that murder. But I, I saw for sure at least five to seven uh, cars, multiple cars, uh, you know, fake medics, you know, spotters, you know, people uh, walking in front of the target to slow them down, like, you know, coordinated kill team, literally. And so, you know, it's organized from top to bottom. They get financial resources. There's information networks. I mean, it's a real thing. And, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream media is not reporting on this stuff. And so somebody has to, and I'm pretty well suited to do it. So I'm out there in the streets, man. You know, like I said before, it takes a lot of guts to get out there in the midst of all that. I mean, obviously you take precautions, you carry some, you know, self-defense tools and you've got you mentioned earlier your bulletproof vest you're masked up and gatored up to you know hide your identity but still man it's one hell of a risk and i gotta say i respect the level of commitment that you have to getting information to people like me you know out here in podunk nowhere who really the only source of information that we would have is mainstream media or maybe some guy took a picture and posted it on social media or something, but you're out there night after night after night and you're covering as much ground as you can. You're you've tuned into the kind of the vibe of the street and you follow the energy waves to see where they're going and you get a lot of amazing shots, but you putting that out there is in my opinion, helping in maybe a, uh, a countermeasure with the whole information warfare that's going on out there. Yeah. And I first heard of information warfare from you. Okay. Right. You were the first person that I ever heard mention it. And this was probably a couple of years ago um, when you had talked about how uh, you were, you were doxxed and it affected you in the way that you got, you know, couldn't coach your kids team in, in sports. And you had all these people just completely just, putting you, you know, blacklisting you from everything and it costs you your job and everything else. Yep. But right now we have a bombardment of random information that gets strung together. And a lot of these things are completely irrelevant from one another, but they piece them together in a, in a certain order where it presents a narrative spelled out and laid out, you know, like just a plate of hors d'oeuvres for us to nibble on and snack on while they just guide us through kind of the uh, tell your own adventure stories that we used to get when we were kids. All right. It's what it, it, to me, that's what it seems like. But then I look and I see you go out there and I've watched you, like you mentioned, you've covered a lot of these peaceful protests and you've covered, uh, you know, the violent riots and the scores of attacks going back and forth and the just chaos out there in the streets. And then I look and I see a, a news clip from a major media outlet from that very same location in that very same night. And they're saying completely different things than what you're actually filming. Yeah. Live too. You know? Like it's not. A, yeah. It's live. Not it's, it's a joke that the building is on fire behind the guy and you see people, you know, throwing bricks through cars and, he, and the guy's sitting there going, you know, it's mostly peaceful tonight. Yeah. You know, you picked the wrong block to lie on pal. Yeah. But you know, it's guys like you that go out there and are, you're fighting against the false narrative and showing everybody what, what's really going on. And I think that's important right now because it's easy to be lied to. It is. And you know, the information space is deliberately muddied. That's one of their tactics, right? Is to, is to just make the information space confusing, make it smell bad, make it distasteful, make it, make it so chaotic that you don't even want to really try to parse what's real and what's is what isn't anymore. Uh, and then that way you begin to accept all kinds of bad things if you're willing to just write things off because you just get confused. 
and you know the mainstream media is at once i believe you know malicious in their intention with their political persuasion i also think that they're lazy and i think that they're cowards and i think that they're probably hamstrung by lawyers and those kind of things too i mean it's uh th there's just like no evidence of their presence on the streets at the times that i'm out there and uh, getting the information out to everybody is an important part of the information war because this really you know, the information element of our conflict is one of the most active elements in what is really a fourth generation combo sort of networked insurgency where these people are coordinating in a new way. They're conducting a, con a conflict that is an evolution of military strategy and then on the ground tactics. And one of the key elements of this, this insurgency they're fighting is, a, is an information and, and propaganda war. And so the, the media environment is just filled with propaganda and lies and obfuscations and just misdirections. And it's there that we all sort of decide what team we're on is by, by paying attention to the information space. And so uh, if you're going to make a good decision as to what team you're on, you need to have as many of the facts in your hand as you can possibly get. And really we have to remember that this is all coordinated, right? Like, I remember when the George Floyd riots start, started off in earnest and I was out on the streets. I witnessed all the looting and the arson and whatnot. And then I get home and then I'm reading, I, and you know, it's Black Lives Matter on the ground and it's all the say her name stuff and, and all the, you know, all, all black suffering is due to systems of white oppression and that kind of stuff, all these chants. And I get home and then, and then I, I read in my inbox from my local PTA and they sent home a reading list of books that include white fragility and anti-racist, which are two of the worst, you know, racist sort of propaganda lie books on the market right now. And so you realize that they're, they're actually co conducting conflict in the street, sort of kinetic conflict, which turns into a propaganda war. And then they're backed up by a network of institutions like the Southern Poverty Law Center or the, no, this was the Anti-Defamation League, I think who recommends reading book lists to PTAs and then the PTAs send those out and tell the parents to tell their kids to read these books. And so we're being bombarded by media propaganda, you know, institutional coordination, uh, uh, you know, direct access to your children, brains and, and mentalities and, and the things that they think and feel and believe about their world and about themselves. And so, you know, that was a powerful moment for me when those things happened all at the same time. And I, and it really, even though I've been writing about it and talking about it and, and interviewing people all about this network warfare and how it works in fourth generation warfare, when that all happened all at once, it really hit home for me because they hit you. It's a total war. It's a total war on a moral level, a mental level, and a physical level. And they're really good at it. And, you know, it's, it's arguable as to whether or not they're, they're actually winning or losing at this point. Yeah, I saw you. I saw the thread that you had put out with the deal with your your kid's school, man. Oh yeah. You know, with uh, critical race theory. Yep. You know, it's gotten so bad with, you know, the schools being pulled into all of this. With, you know, I homeschooled my kids. I, I didn't always homeschool my kids, but it's a weird stance to take. You know, because my, my wife is not white. My children are not white. And then my children get told that they're half inherently racist <laughs> by their teacher. It, it, you know, that's enough to make you just want to burn down the fucking school. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the conflict level isn't just, isn't just in the book list either or, or in the streets or, or on TV or in in the universities. I mean, it's all the way down into your elementary and high school level education, education world, which I have a lot of familiar with, familiarity with. I mean, I was executive director of charter schools for 10 years, which is like I was in charge, not even the principal, but the principal's boss. Like I ran school districts. And then I was a regulator, uh, a top regulator uh, for all charter schools in Washington, D.C. So I understand how education works. And I know that this, this curricula has been distributed to these teachers. And they now sent out a notice to my kids who are in public school in, uh, in Maryland. Uh, they sent home a notice saying that they, the kids were, quote, expected to attend one of the two following sessions. Attendance will be taken. And it was based on this thing called courageous conversations. And so I looked it up. 
And Courageous Conversations is explicitly critical race theory packaged up into a digestible format for children. And it, it, one of the basic rules of it is that you're there to examine whiteness and talk about how most all white people are acting this most way. And it's talking about how they, students expect to be uncomfortable because being uncomfortable is part of the process of becoming anti-racist. And I read all the supporting materials and it's insane stuff like the things that were posted in the Smithsonian recently about how punctuality or individualness or, or um, you know, uh, reliance on data or being a self-starter or all the things that you think make up our, the reason why America is great, all those things are now considered to be white supremacy and you have to remove them and disrupt them from every part of life. And they're doing it with your children uh, in school under the guise of just like having a talk. And I freaked out when I got that email, I did the research, I bombarded the school board and the city council with it. I contacted the principal, talked to the principal and all he kept telling me was that it's just a conversation. It's just a space to explore things. And uh, you know, he didn't uh, appreciate my perspective. And then the kicker is that they don't allow you to observe. I said, well, let's let me silently observe. And he said, no, I'm an educator, man. I ran schools, like I said, we instructed our teachers that they should be prepared to have observation by parents, guests, administrators, coaches, whatever, at any time. So the notion that there is a, a place where the, the, the school teachers and administration are gonna have access to your children without allowing you to observe it is fucking bullshit. And so my kids will be opting out of that, even though it says that they had to attend and ex, uh, attendances required, you know, who cares? That's not happening. And we're not gonna just stop there. We started to coordinate with other like-minded families in the area. Uh, we contacted some legal counsel. Um, I don't think the stuff they're doing is legal by any means. And so uh, we're gonna see what we can do. You know, I'm a, I'm a full-time, full-time battler, full-time warrior these days. And that came because I got attacked by Antifa in 2018. They took away everything that I had, my reputation, my job, everything. And I decided to fight back and build a whole new life. And now here I am stronger than ever. And this is all that I do every day, all day long. Let's fight back and mess this stuff every day. Hey, this is Nate from Unlimited Live Concepts, and we teach people how cash flow strategy can be just as powerful as investing. Imagine being able to earn interest off of every dollar that flows through your hands, whether you're spending it or saving it. We offer a lifetime membership to our financial education platform for $77, but right now you can use promo code RUGGEDLEGACY and save 50% off. With Go Hunt America, you can experience your own outdoor adventure at the touch of your finger. You can find hunting, fishing, and camping spots anywhere in the U.S., put there by private landowners, and you can even list your own. It doesn't matter if it's a large tract of land or a small duck blind. Just go to GoHuntAmerica.com to get started. Coming soon to the Google Play and Apple App Store. I mean, now you have to, if you don't fight back against the mob, you're going to get railroaded. You know, one of the ways that I've noticed that there, there's a, a lot more overreach now in this, just these past six months uh, amid kind of a side effect from the, the COVID epidemic, pandemic, whatever the hell you want to call it, um, with the virtual school, right? You saw a lot of teachers publicly stating how uncomfortable they were with uh, the fact that some parents may overhear what they're teaching your kids. Well, first off, motherfucker, you shouldn't be saying anything to my kid that you would be uncomfortable if I overheard it, because if that's the case, maybe you and I need to go to the woodshed. Indeed. You know, Indeed. It, it, it's getting ridiculous. It's a, it, if that doesn't sound creepy as fuck to you and any of you guys listening, you're probably a fucking pedophile. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. They, they teach you to be mentally ill. Okay. So by that, I mean, when they say you have to sit with your discomfort, that means that they're trying to groom you into believing that your instincts are wrong. 
when you sit there and you feel like something is wrong and you get that real uncomfortable feeling inside you and you squirm and you just have to stand up or you have to just say something. That to me is a red flag, a warning sign that I tell my kids that they should lean into. If you feel uncomfortable like that, then get out of there, go away, move, don't participate, step back and assess. That's a healthy response to an instinctive feel of discomfort or distress. What they're teaching kids is that that instinct is wrong and that they should forget it. And so that means it's a, it's a process of grooming people to forget about their, their, their like uh, self-preservation uh, and accept this new dogma that they're trying to uh, instill in everybody. And, you know, a few years ago, if you would have asked me if we, you know, describe this conversation we're having right now to me back then, I would have thought that I sound a little crazy. I'd have thought that I sound a little tinfoil or a little out to lunch or whatever, but uh, I have been drag kicking and screaming and cynically disbelieving or, or, or sort of not cynically disbelieving all this shit. I had to be convinced, you know, a few times over and the evidence is just so overwhelming that critical race theory is a dangerous religion basically and it has captured or converged or taken over virtually 100% of our institutions. And it, even if everyone in the country doesn't know what it is and they're not actively voting for it, their actions in voting over the last few years have put these people in place. Their failure to attend school board meetings or, or other board meetings or community meetings. When people failed to do that, then all this shit slipped in and now they've, they've achieved high leverage and they're able to exert major impact and major damage uh, through a tyranny of the minority. And that minority is very well entrenched and it's something we're gonna have to deal with for a while to come, unfortunately. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, even talking about it now, it feels like a crackpot theory. <laughs> you know, it's because it's, it's, it's hard to believe, you know, and I, I keep having to remind myself half the time that, you know, <sighs> reality is now more strange than satire. I, I see a post from the fucking Babylon Bee and I got to double check it, you know, well, that, that could be the thing now. I don't know. It's gotten so out of hand, but you know, with the media mainstream, that is failing to cover a whole lot of what's going on. The only reason I heard about this thing was through you and you were the one that shared the link. And I don't even think it got that much coverage but you recently rescued a senator, right? I did indeed. Uh, tell, why don't you tell us all a little bit about that? Because that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. So uh, recently I was out uh, in the streets on the night of the Republican National Convention closing um, where Trump gave a speech and, and the people were at the White House and there was fireworks and stuff. And uh, as that event was winding down, I mean, there was protests all out there. They planned to like drown out the speech and all kinds of stuff. And uh, as the event was over, I happened to be on the street between the White House and like this cluster of very nice hotels. And I started to notice that, oh man, why... <laughs> to be totally honest, the first thing I noticed is this really hot blonde chick walked by, like wearing, wearing this super nice dress and like super hot. She walked by and I was like, what is she doing here? Because everyone else was all sweaty and gross and all rioty and protesty and whatever with backpacks and helmets and water bottles and just, you know, it's exhausting. It's grueling. You're out there. And this, this really hot woman walked by. It was like the lady in red in the matrix. Yeah. By no, completely it, it, out of place. It, was, it really was. It totally caught my attention. And you know, it's a, a funny side note. I did a stream years ago where Richard Spencer was getting chased through the park by a bunch of Antifas and I followed them and jogged along. And like this group of cute girls walked by and I stopped my chase live on stream and I stopped to talk to them. It was pretty cute. People laughed at that for, <laughs> for, for a long time, right in the middle of all that. I just like, they caught my eye. What could I do? So anyway, testosterone takes over some. It does, dude. So I saw, I saw this uh, lady walk by and it didn't really register. But then I saw like a group of people, women in like red evening gowns and men in suits. And I was like, whoa, 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 where are you going? like oh we're just going up here to our hotel i'm like no fucking way i was just there and there was like a, a like literally a mob they were like assaulting police officers people were just getting arrested and stuff and they're just looking for trouble so i guided them away from the mob and through like a back door of this hotel and then i'm i'm on the street doing some more and then the same thing happened like a second group and then a third group and so finally it's like i'm actually just i'm i'm 
keenly aware of the fact that now all these Trump guests have not been you know, adequately taken care of by the DCPD uh, on the streets. And so I'm making it a point of helping these people get back to safety. And uh, as I'm wrapping up the night, it's like about 1.30 or 1.45 and I just decided to go home. I, take a, I start to walk a block away and I'm like, who is that? Is that, oh my God, it's Rand Paul. It's like, holy shit. So I walk, he was just he was standing there, it was him and his wife and two other women and they were standing there and I, and, and I walked up to him really fast and I was like, man, you can't be here. You gotta get out of here because two blocks behind me, it was like 50 people who I had just watched chase people into their hotels and push and shove them and like try to bust into the fancy hotels and all this that were right there. And so I was like, oh man, Rand Paul, you gotta get out of here. So we went, he and I like found, there was one cop nearby. So we found him and we got Rand Paul with the cop. And as I was doing that, the mob, noticed that there was Rand Paul. And so about 50 of them just circled Rand Paul all together. But Rand, luckily, I had gotten to him first. I had gotten the cop. And so he was basically just like taking refuge behind this police officer who was fighting off like 50 guys standing there making sure that nobody nobody assaulted him. And uh, that's when I started streaming. So like I hadn't been streaming before. I took care of getting Rand sorted out. And then I start streaming it and I watch it. And uh, you know, eventually about 30 new cops show up. I was about 15 minutes in and then uh, they, they sort of escort them to their hotel, but not without, you know, Rand getting shoved and people getting pushed around and the woman getting hassled so much that her shoe fell off. And then this old, you know, this like 60 year old woman in an evening gown is like limping on one shoe in the middle of the street at two in the morning with like 50 people screaming Nazi, Nazi, Nazi at her and like throwing her, like waving her shoe in her face and then throwing it off into the streets. I mean, it was rowdy and it was, it was uncomfortable and it was, you know, there were assaults that happened there. And uh, we finally got Rand Paul into the hotel and uh, that video blew up. I mean, it went absolutely bonkers. We did probably a couple mil on that. And uh, my Twitter went ape. And uh, the next morning, Rand Paul uh, goes on Fox and publishes an op-ed and in the op-ed, he says, thankfully, a, um, what did he call me? I don't know, like just an observer, a, friend, a friendly observer happened to notice me and led us to safety before the mob could get to us. Thank Jack Murphy, who had been out there helping people all night. So uh, it was a nice way to get a shout out from Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, um, who, despite being, you know, uh, me not agreeing with 100%, he's still, you know, on the good guy side for sure. And so uh, it was, it, it was, it was fun to be a part of that in one sense. It was sad to have been a part of it in another sense. Uh, but it was just another night of doing my duty. Honestly, man, it's like, I realized I'm a vigilante. I mean, I, I've never like done anything illegal to, to, to sort of be a vigilante, but like it's in my blood to right wrongs and to correct injustice and help people when they need to be helped. And so, you know, it was like, I didn't think about it. I didn't plan it or anything. It was just like, oh man, we got to help this people here and these people here. And before you know it, there's a Senator and before you know it, you know, your name's out there in national news and Senator top ranking senators thanking you for help saving him. Yeah. I get the, uh, the vigilante feel a lot of us, <laughs> you know, a lot of us, especially in the circles that you and I run in, you know, yeah. uh, you and I are going to be hanging out in October in Orlando. Uh, you're still going, right? Well, as of today, unfortunately, no, because Washington, D.C. still has like 30 some states on the corona, corona quarantine list. And if I go uh, to Florida, if I go to Florida for a week and then come back, my ex-wife won't let me see the kids. And so I will be three weeks without seeing the children. So as of right now, I'm, I'm picking my kids over 21, unfortunately. But, well, uh, that, that's I completely change. understandable. That's yeah. completely understandable. I get yeah. that. You know, family first. Yeah. But anyway, the circle of friends, like I was yes. leading to, the circle of friends that you and I share and, you know, typically just mill around with, yeah. we all have this, uh, this kind of an underdog side to us, I guess. You know, we, we like the little guy, and if the little guy starts getting shoved around, we feel like we have to get involved, and that obviously sometimes puts us in pretty hairy situations. Not all, all the time, you know, <laughs> in between a senator and a, and a violent mob like what happened with you. You know, you're just like a hairy John McClain. <laughs> you know, right, you know the, the right guy at the right place at the right time. But Definitely. 
you know, you're the first person I've ever heard of who was a, an indie journalist. All right. And I'm pretty sure there was like some freelance journalists that went out there, Peter Parker style, and just sold their stories and pictures and pieces to big newspapers. But I, I'm really curious, are there other indie journalists out there like you that you happen to know and see on a regular basis out there doing these same things? Or are you just lone wolfing it completely out there? Well, you know, one of the people that influenced me a few years ago was Tim Poole. And Tim, Tim definitely got uh, a lot of work in covering things like that. Um, but, you know, you know, Mike Cernovich covered the riots uh, at the 2016 inauguration here in D.C. But, you know, what happens after a while, if you cover them, become too prominent. You can't cover them anymore because then people, you know, recognize your face. So that's why that's why with Corona. I mean, look, the last before Corona, I covered something in 2017 or so an Antifa alt-right face off. I was just there observing someone took a picture of me just being there and then used that to say that I was a Nazi and that's part of how they got me fired. So like there's consequences to being out there and involved in this stuff, ones that you do may or may not expect. Uh, but you know, these days now I stay covered up and anonymous. So hopefully that will continue, but there, there is certainly a burgeoning industry around live streaming riots. I've noticed there's a few guys that happen to travel around, uh, and just and just live stream, but they're not necessarily activists or engaged. Engaged, you know, they're merely observing. Whereas I get out there and I observe, but I also am engaged. And so, you know, there's there's a small handful of people doing it, um, but uh, you know, renegade journalism, street journalism, whatever. It's it's also something I've always done in a way. Uh, even when I was a kid, I was on the school newspaper, but I would write articles that end up getting me fired. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I, I got, I was on a, a sort of a cute little like high school student special thing in the local newspaper, but my article was so scandalous. They fired me from that too. So like I've been working in journalism and, and, and writing and investigating and, and sharing the stories uh, kind of my, my whole life. So it feels very natural to me and I'm just an investigator. So like, I need to figure things out, whether it's like how relationships work or how to be the best father I can be, or, or what's this business problem or learn about philosophy or whatever it is. I just need to figure it out. I just need to investigate and peel away and, and, and dig. And uh, because all these things have lined up, this is where I'm digging right now. And it's crazy because like I said, I've been covering it for years, but like it didn't turn into the national story of this, of the, you know, of the summer until just now, which really is interesting because uh, you know, you know that I've come from sort of like an online niche, like a small narrow focus and expanded into this national perspective. And so just to keep doing what I've been doing and have the world change around me rather than me change has been fascinating. Uh, and I'm having sort of like a convergence right now between indie journalism and the liminal order and Democrat to deplorable being like one of the most important elements in our election today uh, to my Antifa experience to it being in Washington, DC to education and critical race theory and all of it all happening all at once. Uh, I've been training for this moment my whole life, you know, unknowingly. And I just keep stacking things on top of each other. And here I am like sort of like right in the, in the middle of it all, man. It's uh, it's been wild. It's, it's been wild summer for sure. Yeah, you know, mentioning Democrat to Deplorable, I'm going to confess to you that I have not read it. Reason being is I'm kind of I'm kind of apolitical. All right. I like some of the things that President Obama said. I didn't like a lot of the things he said and did. The same with uh, Bush, Clinton, Trump. You know, Reagan was the first president that I remember, you know. And I've just never been able to really pick sides on anything because the way my life is kind of set up, you know, uh, my wife and my children are Hispanic. They're mixed. Uh, her family was in the Southwest of the United States before it was the Southwest of the United States. You know, uh, her oldest living relative uh, passed away just a few years ago and he was born in the New Mexico territories. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> and so, one of my sons is gay. You know, my friends are of every nationality, denomination, uh, race, creed, whatever. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't fit in a particular box, whether it be judged off of what is your 
typical black and white, are you leftist, are you rightist, conservative, uh, liberal, liberal, whatever. But every time I've gone to Barnes and Noble to get a copy of it, it is sold out. Yeah. It's and I, I want to get it because I just want to have a book on my shelf that I say, hey, I know the guy that wrote it, to <laughs> be honest with you. Yeah, totally. But it is always sold out. So it's obviously something that is really making an impact. And it's a phenomenon why so many people decided to swing conservative all of a sudden in the, you know, the most previous re uh, election. I mean, was it like, what was it like 8 billion people or eight, not 8 billion, 8 million people just all of a sudden swung to one side. It was like a huge counter correction of the pendulum. Yeah. And it's a phenomenon that not a lot of people can understand, but well, you know, the it, thing it, about, it seems like we're doing that again. Now, the thing about the book is that, you know, the men, the main themes is that politics chose me, like things just got so bad and things had changed so much. And, it was affecting me personally that I feel like I've been conscripted into politics. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to politics as intensely as I do now for, for, for a while. Like I'm sort of fresh to this in the last like five years or so, but uh, the, it just became a, a point at which there was no, no other option. And uh, you start to see it around you and understand the forces at work. And you realize it's not even a political conflict. That's afoot right now. This is a deeply moral and philosophical conflict that is basically good versus evil. It's order versus chaos. And there are people uh, within our country today that don't believe in the sanctity of our founding and don't believe in the values that built this country. And they are using the freedom and liberty that our society affords them to attack our country and put into question whether or not America is going to continue on as it had for the last 200 plus years. And so when you start to look at it like that um, and not just uh, are my taxes going to go up or am I going to have to pay Obamacare, which are important issues, no doubt about it. And they matter to me. Uh, but when I started to really understand the conflict here, which is not Democrat versus Republican because the Republican party is totally different now. Uh, it truly is boiling down to people who just believe in America versus people that don't. And so uh, I think you'll see that the the Republican, the Trump Republican Party, the tent is wider than it was before. It's more inclusive, to use a, a tainted word, than before. You know, Trump was the first uh, a candidate ever who will be elected president who supported gay gay marriage, right? Like he he gained more votes with blacks and Hispanics than any Republican, and for a number of elections. And so I believe that that tent is wider than it was. And, and it's, there's a lot more of us who are in the middle, who, who are, are liberty minded, uh, who basically will let you do what you want as long as you let me do what I want, those kind of people. I think those folks are finding themselves more and more in the Republican Party of 2020 uh, because the Democratic Party certainly isn't the party of letting you be you. There's just no question about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I noticed somewhere along maybe 2018 that there was kind of a growth of uh, the personal sovereignty type guys, because that's how I am. I, I'm the guy that believes that gay married couples should be able to defend their meth labs with machine guns. All right. I'm that guy. You know, as long as you're not hurting me, I'm not going to go steal your meth. You're not going to shoot me. We're good. You know, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about it. But, I've noticed that, and maybe this is something that's happened um, just this year with kind of the state overreach with uh, the enforcing of a lockdown and all this other, it ruffles my feathers to a point and it, whether it's coming from a left or a right, it, it really doesn't matter to me. If someone's trying to tell me what I have to do and that doesn't sit well with me, you know, that's, that's the, that's the American culture is fuck you. Don't tell me what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've had to withdraw my kids from public school. I homeschool them. I've got almost zero state influence and mandate that affect how I raise my kids now because I, I'm starting to see that it's getting over you know, out of hand. But not everybody, yourself included, has the ability to do that. You know? And so it's a fight that has to be taken up by somebody. And 
I don't, I'm not a big fan of libertarians because it's more of as long as it doesn't affect me, I'm okay with it. But then it slowly graduates into some shit that's going to affect you and you could have nipped it in the bud before it was affecting you, right? Definitely. And it, it, it's kind of this fine line that you have to, to walk on without getting too deep into the weeds because then you end up like extreme left or extreme right or extreme moderate. And all in all, it comes down to wait until the people that just want to be left alone get involved. And that's when you're going to see the big massive swing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because a lot of us just want to be left alone. I don't give a shit who sits in the white house as long as he keeps his fucking nose out of my business. And it's, it's becoming impossible now because so many people want to be nannied and babied and, you know, pampered by the government and taken care of by the government that you're all of a sudden the bad guy if you just want to be left the fuck alone. And so maybe I'm starting to have this kind of uh, a political awakening, as it were, where I may at one point in the future have to pick a side. And I hate it because I'm, I'm at this point, I'm going to feel like I'm choosing the lesser of two evils, hmm. right? I'm going to, I'm going to feel like, well, I'm going to have to pick the one that negatively affects me the least. <laughs> and man, that sucks, man. Yeah, well, I think I think that this uh, dispute, this political and, and cultural divide, will become so stark that there will be no longer a sense of choosing the lesser of two evils. I believe that over time, that it will become clear that you're actually picking good over evil, and at that point in time, you'll be compelled to act. And I, I I've seen this coming in my book, which I wrote in 2017, published in 2018. I talk about how the political environment currently, right now is evolving or devolving into a battle of good versus evil and that ultimately uh, if we don't do something then western civilization itself is at risk and we see this happening already the chipping away at your icons and your history and your mythology and your values and your identity and 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 changing the idea of justice within the united states and changing the idea of what equality is instead of being everybody treated fairly it's everybody needs to get the same and those roads are mutually exclusive you cannot you can't put one foot in one and one foot in the other and those trends are getting worse and the gap is getting bigger the polarization is getting more intense and at some point you know unless you're um unless you're with them, you're going to end up with us. I mean, that's just the sort of the, the way that things are going. And I say that as someone who was dragged into this reluctantly, you know, I, I too wished that I could just live my life and not be concerned with anything unless it was started to affect me personally. But these issues are so big and so great and so grand and so profound um, that uh, uh, the future, no kidding, the future of the America and the constitution is at risk and action, action is required. <laughs> like, action is needed. I just interviewed a guy, Michael Anton. He was a, a National Security Council advisor for, for Trump. He worked for George Bush. Um, he was managing director at BlackRock, as a matter of fact. And uh, his most recent book is called The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. And, you know, I'm not the only one seeing it this way. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, that agree, and, and we've got data and evidence. And, uh, you know... Time will tell, but uh, it looks to me like the next few years are going to get even even worse and more chaotic than they are now. Yeah, uh, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Roman McClay, he said in his he said in his book, Sanction, War is Coming. Mm -hmm. And in it, he described a whole lot of exactly what's going on now. Right. With the moral turpitude and the ambiguity that just seems to be the flavor of the day. If this was a big fucking basket in Robbins. All right. And one of the things that he mentioned was the middle of the road. The only thing that's there is fucking roadkill. You're going to have to choose a side. And I, I tend to agree with that. And what you just said that it's just a very small matter of time. And we're definitely starting to see it now with, you know, the attempted normalization of pedophilia. You know, California just recently lowered the, 
lowered the basically lowered the punishment for someone who sodomizes uh, a minor, you know, if the minor consented. It would, you know, now it's all right. Fuck it. Let's burn down California. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's starting to get to where, I mean, yeah. And I'm, I feel like you, I'm, I'm being reluctantly pulled into choosing. All right. I'm just going to have to shore up the walls and, you know, mount some guns on top of the house and, you know, have a turret over here, teach my five-year-old how to trigger the claymores because this shit's going to get bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but you know, I think luckily the, the, any conflict that we're talking about here is going to be like a futuristic kind of one. It's not going to be one where there's, you know, people lining up on the sides of a field and running at each other and stabbing them. You know, the, the, the issue is that everyone is conscripted, whether you like it or not, dude, you've been drafted, you're in, you've been drafted. And guess what? You have a uniform on, you're on the battlefield and you are a valid target simply by based on the way that you look. And that is what the big push is right now is to demonize all the things that make up being white, the white people themselves, the quote privilege that they uh, enjoy. And the goal is to make that a sin and you will be guilty of the sin, uh, whether you committed it or not. And you must repent whether you committed it or not. And then even when you repent, you must step aside for the people that conquered you. And that's right in their literature and right in the literature is an advanced anti-racist is someone who, who yields positions of power to people of color or otherwise marginalized populations. So according to them, after they have told you that if you feel uncomfortable to ignore it, if you think it's wrong, ignore it and listen to them. And what they say is, is that the top level of being anti-racist is to yield positions of power to people of color. It doesn't get any more clear than that, my man. And they publish that shit in the Smithsonian. It is in all of our schools. It's all over social media. It is not a secret. It is not hidden. You read it to people who, who on the surface think they support BLM and they, they think, oh, well, you, that must have been a typo. That must have been a mistake in the literature. For example, where Black Lives Matter says that they want to disrupt the notion that the nuclear family is important. I showed that to somebody and they said that must be a typo. They must need an editor. Dude, it's been on their website for five fucking years and it's not a joke. So you don't have to speculate or, or fantasize. You simply have to read the words that they have written and listen to the words that they say and take them seriously. And this is their goal. And whether you want to be in the game or not, dog, you in it because they decided. So at some point you have to accept you're in a burlap sack with a mongoose and a cobra. Which one are you going to be? Because only one of you is getting out. And that's where we are. Well, shit. <laughs> I, you know, we're coming right up there on that hour mark, and I do not see a better way to end this. What has been an amazing conversation, by the way, uh, than right there. Um, well, let's end it. Let's end it on a positive note. There is a way to fight back against this stuff. And the best way to do it is not on social media. It's not screaming so you get your head chopped off. Don't be the squeaky wheel that gets the guillotine <laughs> to mix metaphors. Join the liminal order. That's what we do. We got a group of hundreds of men around the country who are dedicated to our three common values of masculinity, brotherhood, and sovereignty. And everything that we do every day, every course, every seminar, every social, every meetup, every trip to the gun range, every camping trip, every charity drive that we do, every workshop, every coaching session, every social, every barbecue, every meetup, every hike, all the things that we do together as a men's organization, all of these things are meant to alleviate the pressure and to create an environment in which you can not only survive, but thrive amid this chaos of this culture war. So check it out. If you like what we're talking about here and you don't want to be negative all the time, but want to focus on the positives, 
Check me out, liminal order, liminal-order.com. Jack Murphy Live on Twitter, at Jack Murphy Live, jackmurphylive.com's website. Check it out, man. Come down and see what we're doing. We're trying to, to, to take a positive, proactive approach to counteracting all this shit. And so, you know, we're looking for good guys. So come on down. Well, you all listeners heard that. So be sure to support Jack. Watch his YouTube channel, uh, Jack Murphy Live on YouTube, Jack Murphy Live on Twitter. I believe it's Jack Murphy Live on Instagram as well, right? Jack Murphy Live all over the place. It's almost as if I planned it that way. Yeah, it's crazy how <laughs> kawinky dinky that is. <laughs> but Jack, sincerely, brother, thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to get this one out as soon as possible. Awesome. Uh, because like you had mentioned earlier, it's going to get hot in D.C. on the 17th. And people need to know so they can tune in and watch the amazing coverage and the ballsy-ass coverage that you are providing to all of us, literally risking your own neck and throat, all right? I don't think people, people really need to understand that, all right? They're, you're not getting – yeah, you make money from what you do, but you're not getting paid to go down there and get shot in the neck with pepper balls, all right? You're doing this because people need to know. You're doing this because no one else is going to tell this side of it and show raw footage of exactly what's going on. Cause none of your shit gets edited. None of your shit gets doctored. It's live streamed and you're not cutting anything out and you're not going to go to commercial break just when something gets uncomfortable. So for everybody listening, follow at Jack Murphy live. All right. When he runs alive and he's going down to the end of these protests, riots in the DC area, tune in, if you're confused about whether Fox is fucking lying or CNN's fucking lying, fuck them both. Tune into Jack Murphy Live. All right, he's probably the only true voice in journalism in 2020. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on, brother. And for those of you who want to support, keep yeah. listening, and you'll hear the automated reel. Thanks for listening. This has been Jeff and Jack. And we're out. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash rugged legacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a Rugged Legacy production.